You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community. Welcome to a leap year edition of the Daily Nationalist. Today is the uh, 29th of February, 2024. And with everything going on, there's so much. This is a, a absolutely revolutionary era we're in. Um, it can be overwhelming. And so my response has traditionally been to stick with what I know. It's fun to venture outside, but... Um, Things like the American southern border uh, situation in, 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 you know, I, I'm competent to deal with that, but I'm especially competent to deal with my areas of specialization within comparative politics, international relations, and political theory. So I want to talk about Crimea. Johnson's Law being what it is, what I've come across, just for, you know, just put the word Crimea in and see what comes up, and you'll see a level of illiteracy that has to be mendacious. Believe it or not, one title was, Why Did Crimea Fall So Easily? It would take me hours to unpack the layers of uh, absolute uh, illiteracy that would go into even writing a, a headline like that. I didn't read the article. I just don't, what would be the, what's the point of getting dumber? And I've been talking about the Crimea for some time, but today, actually I should say yesterday, I found a couple of articles, um, one by Scott Ritter, many of you know who he is, um, and another from uh, Daniel uh, Kovalik and Rick Sterling. That actually was from a year ago. Uh, the Ritter one is from the other day. And they are first-hand accounts. They took a trip over there. And were able to see for the, themselves. But first, let me give you a, a little bit of a background to what I'm talking about here. So far as Crimea relative to Ukraine. Remember, in Brzezinski's The Grand Chessboard from years ago, the ultimate goal of the regime, the Atlantic Alliance, there's a million names, was to dismember Russia. And they meant Russia. They were not talking about the USSR. The uh, cordon sanitaire, the sanitaire, the most, uh, this, this literal cordon of countries going down Central Europe to neutralize Russia. And within that book and within his career, Ukraine was, was very important. The agenda, the, the overarching agenda, um, is to tear off Ukraine from Russia and make sure it can never be reattached. And not just that, but to turn Ukraine into a, a um, 
militarized liberal empire or liberal nation state and in the process create a new ideology for them that whatever else it might be is anti-Russian. Now there is a theory the Eurasianists, many of them, Dugan, many others, make the claim that without Ukraine, Russia could never be an empire. Some of them even say that they could never be even a sovereign power. Now, I'm not sure if that's true, but let's just say it is. That would mean that Ukraine, of course, after Israel, is one of the most important places in the world. The capturing of that country then becomes after 1990, priority number one. The truth is, and this is true, that if Russia and Ukraine become one again, liberalism will suffer an, an irreversible um, and rapid decline. The nature of uh, Eurasian geopolitics comes directly from regime sources. And that explains pretty much everything. Everything from uh, the Orange Revolution all the way to the war today. In the late USSR, you did have pro-Atlantic politicians running, including the foreign minister, um, within the USSR itself. Of course, the USSR was already a Western system, Marxism, Leninism, you know, these, this was a non-Russian movement. But as I've said before, in military circles, from the 1920s and until today, the Eurasianist school became dominant, despite the fact that that was part of the white movement, in one way or another. There was no way that the military and security services, out of which Putin emerged, by the way, could never accept the dismembering of the country, could never accept NATO expansion. But in the 1990s, late 80s and, and throughout the 1990s, these semi-liberal governments um, did what they were told. Creating these cordons, trying to take the so-called Rimland territory, which, um, going back to McKinder, he talks about um, the coastal zone from Western Europe, uh, and then tracing a line through the Middle East, Central Asia, and even Southeast Asia, including India and China. But of course, we know one thing, that when Putin came to power, everything changed. Briefly, you could say he restored Russia's sovereign status. He removed regime's uh, agents throughout the leadership. He took seriously the military's Eurasian political idea, strengthened Russia's unity, won the Chechen war, altered the, the nature of, of federal districts, tax code, strengthened the territorial integrity and sovereignty of the country. Clearly, this was unacceptable. Making matters worse for the West, the economy exploded on non-liberal models. The regime began to panic. I'm talking about when I first started talking about this, maybe 2002 to 2004. The regime started to panic, and one of the, the manifestations of this panic 
was to begin forcing the countries that used to be a part of the Soviet Union and a ring even around them to become anti-Russian, especially Ukraine. Yeah, the Eurasianist idea says without Ukraine, Russia is not a great power, regional or otherwise. You had more or less neutral policies from Kuchma and Yanukovych. I've dealt with those at length and also in my book, uh, Ukrainian Nationalism. That wasn't enough. And this is the origin of their taking Kiev as a colonial possession to turn it into an aggressive force under the cover of it being a sovereign state, which Ukraine was and is not, which is precisely what the Soviets did at the UN, having Ukraine uh, considered a independent state, even though everyone knew it was nothing of the kind. Now, it, it gets difficult here when you talk about Crimea. The Ukraine within the borders of the early 90s, should never have existed. Uh, people like Dugan call it the administrative creativity of the Leninists. Putin said Lenin created Ukraine, as if to say that it has no legitimacy, not Ukraine as such, but those borders. You had a new concept, something called nationality in the Soviet Union. It was not the ethnic group, it was not the state, Nationality is just a titular label for everyone living within a, a certain set of borders. Lenin, as I've said many times before, posed as someone who wanted an independent Ukraine, but the minute they seized power, any kind of independence was crushed very quickly. The concept is, is that capitalism and free trade will destroy national particularity, and then socialism will destroy ethnicity by making everyone more or less equal. But in the completely the, the, the dogmatic arbitrariness of the USSR and, and communism in general, the claim was that Ukraine has existed long enough as an independent capitalist country. None of that is true. And now it's ready to enter the international uh, era, the era of international. Now, people like Alexander Dugan do note something that I, I know, I've noted some time ago, that in the 1920s and 1930s, you had internationalist, purely cosmopolitan propaganda, while at the same time forcing the Ukrainian language on the entire population, the Ukrainian SSR. Now, of course, those are contradictory ideas, but the point was to crush their number one enemy, which is Orthodox, uh, Russian Orthodox nationalism. So when Lenin created the Ukrainian SSR, it was a non-ethnic country. It took to itself a few things. The territory of the old Cossack Hetmanate, part of which um, became part of the... Of the uh, Tsarist Empire, starting roughly in the mid-17th century. Um, Kiev and Chernigov, conquered from the Poles by Tsar Alexei in 1667. And that, you know, created that, that little Russian hetmanate. You had some, you know, dialects spoken at the time. 
New Russia, conquered from the Ottoman Empire um, by Catherine the Great. That includes Odessa, the Old Sich, Right Bank Ukraine, which of course is the um, heart of the anti-Russian, or at least neutral, Cossack Hetmanate. Um, after the partition of Poland, it became part of Russia. And you did have some other dialects coexisting with with the Russian language. We're talking here about Galicia as a, a special location, and Volin as well. These were the hearts of the Orthodox resistance to the Union. Kharkov and the Donbass is another one. Of course, we know where that is, which were Russian uh, almost 100%. The USSR took Volin, Galicia, even places like northern Bukovina, Bessarabia, as part of Soviet Ukraine. Unless we forget, after the war brought the Rusins or Subcarpathian Rus into the empire, and Crimea was the last added to Ukraine in 1954. Remember, the Bolsheviks cared about a few things, and one of which was the destruction of Russian nationalism. So, after 1991, those many fragments, different ethnicities, different cultures, were all cobbled together in Ukraine, and that's what became independent in 1991. Independent, of course, in, in quotes. Half of them were Russian. The other half was Russified Ukrainians, small minority, professed a local nationalism. And that was what the West thought was going to create this anti-Russian Ukraine. But as I've said before, I have the statistics from 10 years ago saying that even in, in Western Ukraine, you don't have a huge anti-Russian mentality. So while the West imposes liberalism and hence tries to eradicate nationalism, Ukraine was a different story. And you see this from time to time. The regime subsidizes black nationalism and Mexican nationalism in America, but attacks most other forms. The point was to create a simulacrum, this uh, very rigidly Russophobic state. And that's why the control of the media was so uh, essential. And that came into its own, um, not just in 2004, but also 10 years later in the Maidan events where President Yanukovych, who was, as I've dealt with before, not really a, wasn't particularly pro-Russian, but he certainly wasn't purely Western, but even that was unacceptable. Remember what happened shortly thereafter, the 2008 Georgian War, which was a, a miserable failure for the West, and watching Putin's uh, economic explosion, that's when the regime became more and more radical. And the vice president at the time, under Obama and Joe Biden, were involved in all of this. And of course, the purpose to tear Ukraine away from Russia. And in the process, um, creating a war that hopefully will eliminate as many on both sides as humanly possible. And Putin's response to this was reuniting Crimea, 
supporting the Donbass movement after 2014. He foiled the plan to for Ukraine to be a, a, a part of NATO, which, by the way, would have included the expelling of, of the Russian Navy from uh, Crimea, Stavistopol, and, of course, a genocide that would have been imposed on but no permanent solution was available. So you have a semi-nationalist force that created the 2014 coup, which then took control of the media and simply brainwashed the population, uh, launched a, a punitive operation against the Donbass, and were planning a full-scale attack on Donbass and Crimea by the spring of 2022, including a project, not just biological and chemical weapons, but to build their own nuclear weapons. Now, that's the background to this complex situation. As we know, not only is this the um, two-year anniversary of the start of the war, just a few days ago, but also the 10-year anniversary of the Maidan uh, violence. It's strange to have nationalists supporting Western policies, getting rid of, of Yanukovych, and allegedly being a part of this installation of an unpopular Judaic government that sold the country off to various investors, deepening the colonial status. That doesn't make any sense, so you can't possibly be talking about actual nationalists. And that's part of what my Ukrainian nationalism book is about. But it wasn't long after that, in March of 2014, Crimea held a referendum where 97% of the votes, unsurprisingly, were cast to join Russia. And near the end of March, I think it was the 21st, Crimea formally became a part of, of Russia. Now, I said this before, but I want to repeat it. The regime is demanding that Ukraine somehow take eastern Ukraine and Crimea back, which we all know is absolutely impossible. But for what purpose? No one wants them there. And the first thing Russia did um, was blow up the dam that Kiev built. I think I've said this before, to block the North Crimean Canal in an attempt to starve Crimea of water. 85% of, of their water supply comes from that. So Ukraine destroyed the economy at this point. And then in November of 2015, a terrorist from Kiev's and hence Washington's employ, blowing up the power lines from Ukraine to Crimea. Now these are terrorist actions because they're exclusively aimed at a civilian uh, population. Now, in two decades, when Kiev ruled these areas, the local economy followed the same route as every other part of, of Ukraine, and that is uh, to become a third world country. Remember last week I talked about Ukrainian court case, and I said it's a case of psychological projection. And this is true, because everything they accused Russia of doing, they did violently and openly prior to 2014. Crimea was reduced 
to having a, a gross regional product almost 50% less in 2000 than the average in the rest of Ukraine. So you're talking about the creation of a fourth world state. There was no attempt to develop the country or the region. And it was, of course, was done on purpose. Now, if Kiev is willing to blow up bridges and destroy the economy of these areas, what are they going to do if they take it back? Which, thank God, is impossible. Thank God, it's almost 100 years. And even if, even if you have a problem with Putin, you're still voting to become a part of Russia at the time. There is no functional economy there. But Russia immediately began rebuilding the infrastructure. It was very difficult because you had to destroy the rotting infrastructure that existed there and replace it. You're talking about drilling wells, storage capacity, even desalinization plans for the water supply. And of course, you had to completely reboot the agricultural sector. Then, of course, they replay well, the, the energy bridge, so-called, which is what the Russians created, the energy cables across the Kerch Strait. And since the Ukrainians had destroyed the power lines, this restored them. Then, a $4 billion, 10-mile bridge that had both um, car traffic and, and rail, which connected southern Russia to Crimea, the longest in Europe, actually. Took about two years, open to regular passenger traffic in 2019. That also includes the Tavrida Highway, about 200 miles of it, $3 billion, which connected that bridge with Sevastopol and, else, and elsewhere. Even more, Crimea saw its population increase. It went from about 2 million to 2.5 million. Because you had so many people fleeing Ukraine. Other people came in because the business opportunities were, were extraordinary. Since the ruble took over as the currency, that economy then exploded just as the Russians did. Everything increased in value when it's denominated in rubles. Now, the great thing about Ritter's article is that he's talking about when he, you know, he was just there. Of course, the Ukrainians have tried to destroy all of this, despite the fact that it really would only affect the civilian population. Uh, it was October of 2022, and then again, July of, of last year, doing everything it can to destroy the civilian infrastructure of, of the area. Coming off the bridge, and this is, this is his first-hand account here, he gets on the Tavrida Highway, and he winds up in the village of Fiodosia. Actually, it's a city. Um, and this is one of the prime destinations for Russian tourists. Even now, huge small business explosion. But still, the scars from the Ukrainian era are there, especially the crumbling everything which the Russians have spent a fortune to replace. In another act of terror, in December 26th of last year, the Ukrainians used its uh, UK-made Storm Shadow cruise missiles to try to destroy the city, one or two of which penetrated Russian air defenses, hit um, at least one cargo ship. 
the people who he met there, many of whom had escaped Ukrainian third-worldization. And the Orange Revolution saw all of Ukraine fall to pieces economically. And um, the Orange Revolution of 2004-2005, and of course everything got worse um, in the very beginning part of 2014, but that was the last straw. And people who were forced to escape, when they returned, found a very different country. Many people there were involved in building the Tavrida Highway. And every once in a while, these missiles would hit exclusively civilian targets. And if this is what the news media simply doesn't understand and refuses to, to, uh, to talk about. When he got there, everything was new, even during the war. Now, smaller villages weren't as, as well off because so much of the infrastructure money went to the larger towns and, and cities. But it's not just a matter of rebuilding an area, it's having to undo the very shoddy work, the neglect of the Kiev uh, system. We talked last week about the accusations of, of Kiev, which essentially is the accusations of, of Washington. While violent Ukrainianization was the norm, of course, in Crimea, the opposite has not occurred. Now, it's true, there are Russian military vehicles all over the place, and those that equipment has destroyed a lot of the, the roads because they're so so heavy people still there they, they talk about the explosion the destruction of the dam of the northern Crimean canal which meant water for Crimea they say that Crimea has returned to life even during the war retaking Crimea would mean the slaughter of its population both deliberate and indeliberate the contempt of the Crimean population, regardless of their ethnicity, was not matched by the Russian speakers there. About eighty percent uh, people there, regardless, speak uh, speak Russian, and 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 the descendants of the of the Tartars there are some of the most loyal pro-Russian uh, factions of the region. And Daniel Kovalik's first-hand account was absolutely shocked. And these are Americans, remember, or at least speaking English. There was no contempt for the U.S. They were treated with kindness, with hospitality, no matter where they were. Even though they were from the United States, English speakers, they were well taken care of. You have Americans who don't know the first thing about the area, but they hate Russians. It is not mutual, however. The three ethnic groups there, you have ethnic Russians making up maybe 60% of the population, 70%. This isn't going to add up to 100 because there's a lot of um, fuzzy edges here. Ukrainians make about 15% and Tartars are around 10 to 15%. The rest are, are mixed in one form or another. And of course, Russian is the dominant language, despite the fact that Ukraine is one of the official languages. Of Crimea. Obviously, it's not the case uh, in Ukraine. In 1991, there was another referendum 
where 94% of Crimeans voted to become autonomous, almost independent of Ukraine. And, and the Ukrainian response was to Ukrainianize Crimea as well as the Donbass area, outlawing the Russian language, tearing down Russian historical monuments, not Soviet ones, Russian ones. Of course, 2014, it just went into overdrive. You know, that 97% um, referendum in 2014, you had 85% turnout. But what Ukraine does is it wants to punish Crimea for their overwhelming decision to return to, to Russia. And this is why they uh, damned the canal. These idiots want to talk about recapturing Crimea, but this kind of mendacious and spiteful treatment, constant drone attacks deliberately against civilian targets, that country, I don't care what your background, is never going to willingly go back to Ukraine. And this is why this war, unfortunately, had to happen. It's entirely the West's fault. But Putin, again, being more cautious maybe than he should have been, recognizing that there was a an invasion planned for the spring of 2022, had to take action. Kiev accused Russia, if you remember last week, of doing everything that they've done not just in Crimea years ago, but in Ukraine today. Ukrainian language is an official language, and Tartar is as well. And it was passed deliberately. This was this is back in, in 98. That was passed in response to, in the same year, the Ukrainian law designated Ukraine, Ukrainian as the only national language. Of course, it's gotten much worse since then. Even after 2014, they refuse to, to respond to this. Those languages still are protected. There was no retaliation in the sense that Ukrainian monuments in Crimea haven't been touched, and they're right to do it. They even mention um, Lesna Yukranka, uh, the poet who I think I briefly dealt with before. It still stands, and there's events there all the time. Same thing goes for the Crimeans. So many of the Tartars that had been exiled by Stalin returned only after 2014. They even got reparations. I mean, they were a very loyal group anyway, but they got reparations. And those, that many of them are, are Islamic, but very pro-Russian Islamic, built a very large mosque there. These authors also say that talking to people there, they don't like the current war, but almost to a man they believe it is it is necessary. And they permit a Ukrainian language uh, press there, obviously. But they don't bear any ill will, they say, towards Ukraine at all. They do see it as a colonial possession, and hence not the fault of the average Ukrainian. And that also is certainly true. They blame the U.S., they blame NATO, but it's not a personal sort of contempt like you have in Kiev. And that comes directly from the Jewish element, and it comes from the uh, the American element. That's how that operates. A lot of the Russians there have family and friends in, in living in Ukraine. Russia has brought in almost 5 million Ukrainian refugees more than any other country 
that's since, you know, that's I'm actually the, my numbers here, 5 million from February of 22 to July of, of, uh, um, of 23. And these refugees seeing what the Crimeans have settle. And these are Orthodox Ukrainian. They will never go back. And that's also very well known. But understand that given the damage of this war, the huge Ukrainian casualties, and this refugee issue where no one wants to go back, Ukraine has now been depopulated. They also recognize you know, their press is far freer than anything, and well, Russia's is freer than anything in, in the West. Russia's not banning um, Western media, but the West bans Russian media. These drone attacks are happening all the time against civilian targets. But one thing that everyone living there agrees on, it doesn't matter how Ukrainian they might be, is that no one wants to return. They will never voluntarily go back to not just a failed state, but an extremely violent and oppressive state where orthodoxy, with the exception of a few weirdo groups, has been banned by this Jewish government. They're not shy about bringing up the Jewish question. I think we all know that. Most importantly, the country has been rebuilt. It went from third world to first world in maybe eight years. That's extraordinary. So when you see these stupid articles about retaking Crimea, keep this in mind, please. It would be a genocide uh, on the level of Gaza. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will, as always, talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You're listening to Radio Albion, talk radio for the nationalist community.